0: Welcome back to Consiliance Conversations, episode five. And back with me is my esteemed colleague and friend, Dr. Matthew Roos. Welcome back. Thanks,
1: Alex. How are you doing this week?
0: I'm doing really well, and I'm finally feeling better. My voice is mostly back. I'm, I'm about to share the screen now and uh, show the PowerPoint that we had last time. And uh, well, as these conversations go on, it's like we have more and more to say uh, about fewer and fewer things. And so I think it's a, a good a good sign and also a fun sign that we, uh, we, well, as we talked about in the pre-show, we have so much to talk about.
1: Yeah, these uh, episodes, uh, we're finding ourselves cut off after the uh, sort of allotted time where I think episode one, you know, it was sort of back and forth and uh, we didn't know how it was going to go. But now um, I hope our listeners agree that we're, we actually have conversations that are, uh, have some interesting content once in a while, surprisingly.
0: Yeah, well, you know, and uh, something listeners should know is we appreciate that uh, we essentially doubled the amount of you this last month, and uh, you can always donate, donate to the uh, Anchor page if you want to, and then we can pay Dr. Matt Bruce to be on here, and uh, that'd be nice. That'd be nice I, to get. on I,
1: yes. uh, I, the list. Hey, yes, the, um, the required amount is extremely low, Alex, as you've <laughs> covered, so, but I'm sure it could be put to other good use for you, for uh, from your listeners and for your show generally.
0: All right. Well, so well, what we wanted to talk about today, as usual, we have sort of a pastiche. I definitely want to ask you uh, about the cognitive bias that we didn't get to last time, motivated reasoning. But even before that, I, I mentioned to you that I was pretty interested in your example of cognitive dissonance reduction from the PowerPoint here. And yeah. your paints up seven fundamental emotional states. And just to kind of lay it out for something we can talk about today or next time, we're also reading through this... Um, this work, uh, "The Coddling of the American Mind" by Jonathan Haidt and uh, Greg Lukianoff, a First Amendment lawyer and uh, uh, a clinical—or excuse me, a social psychologist—in reverse. And we read this chapter, "Intimidation and Violence," from "The Coddling of the American Mind." And there were two concepts I was going to ask you about potentially, which were which were um, uh, collective dramatic action uh, in preparation for a unified social action. So, like. Uh, m- rituals of like praying together or, you know, like, uh, uh, what the all blacks do before they take the field in rugby or like a football team that like sort of jumps in a huddle together and starts jumping up and down football teams do that too. Yeah, uh, yeah. and also, and also sort of the neuro circuitry of the claim that words can do violence. Um, and so, right. yeah, broadly that was what we sort of, uh, <laughs> laid out, but, uh, that might be a couple shows. So, you know,
1: where would you like yeah. to start? Well, we can go where you, wherever you'd like. I would say um, so. I read that chapter yesterday, and um, you know the the examples you gave with the sort of uh, religious rituals that are also similar to spiritual sporting rituals. Actually, that wasn't in that chapter, so uh, you might have touched on that in the subsequent chapter, perhaps. Maybe. But nonetheless, um, you know, we talked about it just a bit before the show, so I'm happy to sort of. Speculate on that is the best I can do, but the the aspects of uh, words as violence, if you will, uh, or speech as violence, I thought that was that was very interesting. You know, I think it's uh, and and, and you've brought up the term concept creep uh, quite a bit, and that is another sort of form of a that's a that is one exemplar of a concept creep where you know it used to be that we would when someone said phys- said violence they meant physical violence, and that was uh pretty well understood um and i think they give an example in the book of a you know when we talk about nonviolent offenders uh that is uh criminals or those who have at least been charged um you know we clearly mean those who have not physically harmed anyone Mm. but uh concept creed this is an example of where now violence has gone from meaning physical harm to at least in some people's interpretation uh emotional harm and um and there's even more tenuous connections where someone might say, well, if you do enough emotional harm to someone, maybe there is physical harm too, in the form of uh, repeated stress and you know, sort of mm-hmm. the uh, the toll that that takes on the body. So, um, yeah, where would you like to you know launch the discussion on it from here?
0: Well, so my question is, uh, do so? I suppose a, a claim that one might make is that if emotional pain uses the same brain circuitry as physical pain. Mm -hmm. then uh from a phenomenological level or an experiential level or even uh, a neuropsychological level they are the same and so then one would have a physical basis for saying words could do violence but if that's not true and we do have that research well it seems like that's wrong and well that's something i'm trying to do here i'm trying to catch the humanities up their, catch their theories up with the things we actually know due to empirical science? Now,
1: mm-hmm. I think it's an awesome question, really great question or topic for discussion. Um, and I haven't done any sort of homework or review on this. Uh, yeah. I would, you know, the first order, the first order answer is yes, there is some relationship between areas of the brain that might be activated by physical harm and those might, that might be activated by you know, emotional harm is it, it's it hard to say what you mean by that yes. or not you but generally um, so there there can be uh, at least my you know passive readings that this is not an area of you know study for me but um, now that's far cry from saying that they are identical neurally um oh you know for, so emotional harm um, first of all it could it could i you know this is a lot of this is speculation but you can imagine it comes in, in various forms. So, um, if you are physically assaulted, um, the, the, the pain is immediate, right? It is incontrovertible. It's just there. Yeah. Um, if it's an emotional harm, so again, that's, that can perhaps be re- related. Sometimes it's more about a persistent, um, uh, infliction of, you know, so you may be, if it just once, if uh, it may not really harm you, it may not even sort of activate that si- that same circuitry or portions, some sub portion of that circuitry. But, you know, my, my feeling is that, my guess is that with repeated uh, sort of emotional attacks um, or attacks upon your emotion, uh, you might see more and more uh, neural activation. And I'm talking really about, you know, the evidence for this is probably almost completely from uh, fMRI or MRI studies and fMRI studies that's functional uh MRI um showing this sort of work although I would imagine it'd be hard to um you know if you or I just get into the physical scanner that is the MRI machine what is your approach as a researcher to emotionally harm me and of course as a subject a volunteer subject I would have signed up for this although people sign up for studies where they are physically harmed too of course right the pain levels are Kept to a reasonable amount, um, but now emotional harm. It may be that this seems like it would be a um, perhaps uh, unethical approach to ex- to this sort of experiment. But you might want someone who's already um, experienced some sort of emotional harm. and They're seen seeking treatment, and would they be willing to you know sort of undergo these studies where they are they are actually sort of mostly assaulted a small bit so we can see what their neural reaction is. So um, I guess the other thing before I just, you know, start talking away and and (laughs) just get away from myself, one thing that I I wanted to, I had put a pin in and want to mention is that um, it may be that there's another contrast between emotional harm and physical harm uh, in my mind is that um, the physical harm is, uh, again, it's not only does it, is it like nearly instantaneous, it's, unless you're a a Buddhist monk, you are probably unable to ignore that physical harm, to have that pain go away. Um, You know, there's a level of extreme, some of us have perhaps a higher threshold for pain than others and maybe perhaps we can learn that to some extent or train ourselves to that to some extent. But I think the emotional harm, and this may go, this relates I think to a lot of the, some of the content in uh, the, the chapter that we were reading uh, it's sort of a choice as to whether to allow that to harm you or not. And this also connects back to this sort of anti-fragile aspect. So if you are not emotionally harmed periodically, a small amount, you may never build up a sort of uh, neural resistance uh, to stronger emotional attacks. And, and we say, talk about emotional attacks. I, I don't know if that's really, or I'm talking about it, but maybe that's not the right terminology. You know, the emotions are actually what um, are provoked. Um, yeah. And so someone could insult you or say something to you that is counter to your belief. Um, And what your emotional reaction is to that speech is a different story. Um, But so maybe it's um, if you are able to sort of, if you are able to in small doses uh, take those insults or those, those thoughts that are opposed, you know, that seem in opposition to your thinking and build up a, a resistance to them, which doesn't mean you are just ignoring them. You may hear them and sort of consider them and take them into your sort of uh, overall um, schema or consciousness of people's thoughts, but that doesn't mean they cause you emotional harm, so. Well, that,
0: that strikes me as exactly the point. I mean, you said, you answered many of the questions that were popping up to me as mm-hmm. you were talking, so I think your narrative was a perfect Uh, It was perfect. You you were answering each question as it came up, and that was exactly what I wanted to ask, whether there was more of a cognitive element to so-called emotional or so-called and ill-defined emotional harm
1: Mm -hmm.
0: uh, as opposed to physical harm. And then you touched on the training aspect that, you know, if you're physically strong and you get punched in the chest, you experience less pain than somebody who is physically weaker and gets punched with the same uh, motive force, and that there might be sort of an element of um, exposing your emotions or exposing yourself to that which disarrays your emotion, emotions. I think you made that distinction, mm-hmm. um, right? So that you become more robust, or rather, even stronger than robust, as uh, Nassim Taleb uh, anti fragile. So that your your mind, or you know, your consciousness, whatever you want to call it, that which has to tend to your emotions, move things like right hemisphere the left hemisphere needs to get sort of practice um dealing with emotional disarray in order to become stronger as a, a a system um
1: right i think that's you know there's uh this one interject one statement which is uh you know i like which you, how your your terminology emotional disarray uh and and so there yeah i guess i, I mentioned someone may make some sort of statement and you'd you learn what sort of emotions to allow yourself to what to what emotions are elicited by that statement. But even you may also learn that there's sort of the next level, which is, I, I think your term emotional disarray is, is, is a good way to coin it. If you know, but then there are so going to be sometimes that your emotions are going to be uh, fired up in some way, but that doesn't mean you, you you still need to have that happen sometimes to learn how to deal with those emotions right? and to learn how to um, you know, Calm them down, think logically, think critically, and don't just let your emotions drive your behavior. Well,
0: it sounds like, and this is a point Dante makes in the Purgatorio, just get that reference in there, Mm -hmm. that the more situations you are forced to adapt to, or that you will willingly allow yourself to be put in in order to adapt as a human, right? Like we will actually put ourselves in situations in which we attempt maximal adaptation that are uh, non-necessary, like learn how to figure skate, or learn how to fly fish, right? Those are how
1: to be a public speaker, you know, these things could be, um, sorry, I like, I would just want to throw that one in there because that's one where, um, it's not a physical thing. You're not taking on any physical task. You just are, you know, it's something that you're averse to. And, um, but you got to step in there and you're never going to be good at it or even okay at it unless you, you try it and get over those, right. uh, Those fears.
0: And, you know, be about that being that, you only, uh, you do not only adapt to that specific behavior, but to the symbolic behavior behind it, or w- which is you adapt to being able to confront that which you fear and are not good at and acquire the skill necessary to more master that domain and then thus extend your, your range of competency and not only that, but your ability to become competent in the future as well. Um, mm-hmm. And well, I I mean, that really makes me want to ask to what extent dopamine is necessary in the production of that sort of habit. Um, And and when um, when you are pursuing the acquisition of skill in order to adapt to a new environment, like you're learning how to swing so you can be a better baseball player, right? That has very little use outside of the baseball arena, except for the fact that the better you get at learning a new skill, the better you get sort of at mastering any domain you're in. Uh, rather than just the specific domains that you've already mastered
1: sure sometimes that's a uh you know you're you're learning to learn as well uh we all often you know throughout, right. throughout life right. you, you you may not so you follow it followed up in your baseball example you may learn how to swing and you may if all you do is focus on learning how to swing well that you you probably will not have like uh you probably will not have learned a general form of learning but right. if you're a uh, you know if you're a gifted athlete or even if you're not but you just love sports and you go out and you try to learn lots of different uh, sports uh, movements um, you will of course get better at those movements but you will probably get if, if there's another one you know then you try a new sport that you've never tried before five years down the road you will probably learn that one more quickly than um, than you would have had you not uh, learned those other uh, sports.
0: Well, well then I think this is the damning piece of evidence against sort of the words is violence argument, because here it is. If you are a young and therefore most likely sort of fragile and weak thinker, and I say something that identifies me as out group for you, whatever that happens to be, and you label me using a cognitive distortion, which might just be called a, a novice level mistake of thought mm-hmm. that, with generalized applicability to people. Um, Then, and you label me, and then you experience negative emotion because of my presence, because I have identified myself as differing from you. Well, how that's going to be, people are, depending on what in-groups you're in, which I can't possibly see if I'm a non-judgmental, non-discriminating person, and even if I am, it's impossible to see all the in-groups you're a part of, and like say who your family is and all, all of these sorts of things about you. I can't see inside of you either. There's a lot I just don't know. Um, but um, how is it possible for anybody ever during speaking or even just manifesting their being not to identify themselves as in some more way out group to somebody they're talking to? How could they possibly know enough to do that? It just it becomes impossible at that point, it sounds well,
1: like. Well, it's it's certainly you know you could take the flip side of that and if and and say if if you are speaking with someone and that person somehow is you know getting back or, or connecting this a little bit to what you were asking about or suggesting about um, sort of forming of habits and perhaps even dopamine's connection to this um, if if, uh, if that other person is if their 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 cognitive habit is to look for. Uh, uh, Characteristics and someone that they're speaking with to identify them in, as an outgroup person, um, whether that's a specific outgroup, um, you know, sort of, or this sort of like, um, yeah, which may fall in this sort of like common identity, uh, common enemy identity politics, which I think right. is quite prevalent today. Um, you know, you as the, so that's sort of, there may be nothing that you can do to prevent that person from, very little you can do to prevent that person from sort of uh, moving along their typical habit of thought formation um unfortunately so i I think you know when you i I think we touched on this last time a little bit and so i can only speculate on it but when talking about you know we talked about dopamine and how that relates to sort of habit formation and you know movements motor movements are the easiest examples of that and are which and, and we talk about habits and that can be movement habits too where if you you've learned to do something one way, physically, it can be hard to break that habit, even if you're very conscious of it. What I don't know, but I would, I suspect may be true, is that we may have cognitive habits too. And, and I, what I really mean by that is sort of approaches to, uh, to the world, am I thinking about it? And if you are uh, never, if, if you learn a habit early, that you should always be looking for someone to, um, to impose upon your safety or that they are being violent with their words. Uh, if that's all you look for, then you may form that habit early on. And whether that's the same sort of neural process-y process as uh, motor habits that creates that, I don't know, but that may be part of what's happening. And we all know those, those habits are, are hard to break.
0: Well, and if you build that habit and don't build the habit for lear- learning additional robustness by maximizing or, or you know, just increasing your adaptive capabilities, and your uh, domain of competence, then you're going to stick to that small domain of competence, which is that fear response, that childish response, right? That appeal to some authority outside of oneself with no recourse to reason simply because one feels a certain way, um, mm-hmm. then, then you're going to sort of just keep using that, uh, that adaptation and it's going to mat- manifest in your behavior. And so something very interesting about the, uh, the gray paper that we read, was, mm-hmm. was that um, it, it seemed to be saying to me, and I, I have a very general sense of this because it was, you know, very complex science in there, is that when you develop a physical habit, uh, dopamine is released during each micro part or micro routine within the habit in order to facilitate uh, doing the thing effortlessly
1: over time. Um, and was, well, A, is that yes. correct? um well they're, they're you know so dopamine has multiple roles, and as you mentioned it's it's very complex but um and so that's why neuroscientists are <laughs> many of them are still continuing to to say this um I think there's two two key things one is that it does sort of it is it is there to um uh to ensconce certain behaviors uh, in a way that makes them easier to perform, that you don't have to think about them uh, consciously as much, or you need l- less cognitive effort to execute those um, physical movements, and then probably also, uh, perhaps also cognitive actions or behaviors as well. Um, but it's not only for, and so I talk about that as like modulates learning, I think I, I put on um, you know, our notes there. Uh, it, it, it enhances the plasticity between certain neural connections and allows this sort of like a stronger circuit to to emerge. So you can do these things quickly and easily without too much effort. Okay, um, but, on that but, point,
0: on that point, ahead. just to pause it there, just because I think this might this this might have some take of it is. Then if you've developed those pathways and sort of increased those pathways and sort of lubricated them so that it is easier to access them in terms of your thinking, which is then manifested in your behavior, which is seeking seeking to make somebody in front of you a threat to get them away from you, then it strikes me that, that is like, and it's funny, we got back here, like an addiction to a way of thinking that manifests mm. behavior because it has been rewarded so often by being used so often that it has become sort of the sole adaptation in thinking and behavior to
1: the world. Well, way, uh, oh, you know, a great connection. I, so, I, you know, first of all, the, again, this is somewhat speculation. Uh, it's not somewhat, it's lots of speculation here about um, how some of these cognitive uh biases and some of the things that we're discussing could be related to this reward system and dopamine's uh uh role there um but the one thing that you just that one thing that came right to my mind when you mentioned that is what you know people call calling out so shaming or calling out someone yes. uh for take here for taking some action or saying something that may have been intended to be harmful to another person um but oftentimes it's so so slight that either it, it was not intended to mean anything uh, negative, or it actually didn't mean anything negative. It's just that you, you the judger of this, are so sensitive to it that you're, you're the one that's sort of overly sensitive to it. Um, so that I could see is perhaps, you, know, you feel, you might feel rewarded by having called out someone or shamed someone in that manner, and, that certainly could fall under the purview or potentially could call under the pur- purview of sort of an addictive, that you're sort of addicted to that and it gives you, you know, gambling gives you is an addiction too. And so maybe shaming people is, uh, some people might be in some sense addicted to that. Well, let's talk about that because, so if that
0: has become my mode of adaptation and I discover that, and I just taught about entering the purgatorio today and sort of the process of recognition of sin, and I want to connect this to the breaking of a bad habit which we Mm -hmm. have down here and how to actually break a bad habit. You see, the idea in the purgatorio is you have to recognize it versus sort of the Catholic idea, but not a religious version. I think it's actually just a very symbolic and useful idea that is probably right. First, you have to recognize the bad habit. Then you have to deal with the emotional pain of, you know, changing your map of yourself because you are no longer like perfect avatar in the world, but like imperfect human. And then you have to put in the, uh, the work, or the sacrifice, the effort, and the time to improve upon your imperfection. That's also a point that Plato makes in the Mino, that it's only when you realize your imperfections that you're uh, motivated to work on them. And so- It reminds um, me a
1: bit of uh, you know Alcoholics Anonymous, and they have 12 steps. that I like that. You know, there's, That's too many steps for me to, <laughs> to recall, but that's, uh, you know, that sounds like a real abbreviated version of that in some sense.
0: Yeah. 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 So, uh, well, I want to talk, well, I, I guess my, I want to ask you then about w- how it is that one starts to replace a bad habit with a good habit, because when we get into the Purgatorio with Dante, he has the proud who looked down on people bent over by the rock they stood on in order to look down on people so that now they have to look up to everybody. And mm-hmm. so Dante's sort of idea there, and they have to look up to these, these, uh, images of humility with a funny inversion there that, um, and then down on images of pride. And so there's sort of a Christian inversion there, but his idea seems to be that one changes one's perspective or one's habit of perceiving and acting in a certain way in the world by, um, uh, sort of overcorrecting to the other angle. So if you've been looking down, you need to be bent over so you can look up so you can attain a balanced perspective. And mm-hmm. I just thinking, uh, I'm just wondering in terms of like the neuroscience of Uh, replacing a bad habit with a good habit is it the case that your bad habit still exists but your new habit becomes stronger or that one uh becomes weaker while one becomes stronger uh can you wipe out the circuitry that you've developed for a bad habit like a cocaine addiction or or being a part of a shame culture or you know what i just want to understand this a little more
1: yeah well my recollection from uh, you know my early days of studying these these matters is that um, it, to a degree it may be it's very difficult to uh, sort of remove a habit. And I'll give you a sort of more concrete example. Um, yeah. So again, I will just take it back to sort of a, a like a a motor example. So maybe a player is very good, uh, or they're good, and they become very accustomed to. Taking a certain baseball swing, like you like you suggested, but um, they need to break that habit because there are better ways they can move, or perhaps the, the way they move is actually uh, it gives them a great swing or a very powerful swing, but it's more damaging to their body, right? So they need to mm-hmm. to, to learn a more ergonomic uh, uh, way to swing. So they work on that, and they work on that, and they work on that, and of course the way you might have to break any habit of that sort is you're thinking very consciously about how you're moving your body and repeating it again and again and again. Um, and times when you're successful, you know, there's some little bit of reward and that is, you know, dopamine reps that represents the value there and that, that promotes that the learning of that new circuit. But to get to your point, um, to my understanding they, it's very hard for that old circuit to go away. Okay. Um, And maybe it can, and maybe they're, you know, I, I, this, so this is definitely uh, out of my realm generally, but the sort of anecdotal example that perhaps you can, many, of many people might be able to relate to is that it's going to be very easy to go back to that old habit. And so if you, you know, if you had truly erased it to the point where it was if you had never learned it, well, then it would be hard for you to then relearn that, right. That, that previous old bad swing, um, and unlearn your new ergonomically friendly swing. Um, so it is hard to break habits and not only hard to break them, it's hard to prevent them from reemerging. Um, so yeah. is, that the, is that a good analogy for cognitive habits and things that may be detrimental cognitive habits like we're discussing? I'm not sure, but it seems like a possibility.
0: Well, I just have a couple things to say about that I, I think that's an excellent example, and it also explains why sort of regression to an earlier psychological state makes sense because you're you're actually literally regressing to a an earlier neurological state or a state of former are adaptation that is no longer a current adaptation.
1: Are you talking about it in, in, in the context of um, sort of like the Dante uh, notion about how to uh, sort of overcome your your negative uh, behaviors or characteristics?
0: Yes, but why it's also easy if, say, you're stressed or tired to act more like a child
1: to, ah. because
0: you have so much time built in of acting like a child or, you know, your former, sort of like we talked about last time about how there's a neurological element to personality, um, how those former. Parts of your personality that maybe you don't use anymore. Maybe you used to whine, you don't whine anymore. You used mm-hmm. to feel to authority,
1: but now you're an expert, and so you use your head a little more. Um, well, like, that uh, yeah. I'll call out that real quickly, and not call it in the way we've been using the term previously. <laughs> but, um, using your head more. So, right, I, you know, you get tired, and it may just be part of it is that as we um, not only age, partially as we age, because our 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 frontal lobe, our you know the cortex or our executive function cortex develops further and further well even into our 20s um, that develops more but also those that have had more life experiences and so some people may have had a wider variety of both positive and negative life experiences earlier in life other people may take longer uh, across their life to accumulate some of those um but yeah i you know you're if you're tired if you're cranky maybe because uh you are just unable to put forth the motivation to utilize your frontal lobe as much as you might uh, otherwise. And that sort of like those uh, habits of both habits uh, that have, may have been formed or are, are, may come out, ones that you might actually suppress otherwise. Um, and also, you know, the, your, your raw emotional state is more easy. It's uh, that can, that is less likely to be inhibited as well.
0: Well, that's so interesting because just, uh, I, I had Aristotle for us the other day, and uh, I know that this is not technically his quote, this is an internet version of his quote, that excellence is a habit, but he, he does make a distinction between, in his ethics, habits and actions, that essentially one's habits are the result of one's accumulated actions, and so one should strive to not only uh, input the best uh, possible actions into one's habits, but have also the best possible habits. And it sounds like from,
1: from what is, is he what saying? So it sounds to me, you know, sorry, I like that was yeah. interesting, but um, your accumulated actions lead to your habits or are, are what form your habits. But so it sounds to me that, so I, this is a question. So from the, I guess uh, I would ask Aristotle if he yes. were here, but I'll ask you. Uh, so what do you mean by, you know, you can choose your actions, uh, well, we'd like to think that we could choose our actions and those accumulated actions will lead to habits. But then you said the words accumulated are the, the you know, the habits that we, we the habits that we choose or act upon, or I, I didn't quite follow that. Sounded, uh, it's almost by that first description, it sounds like we actually, we can't choose which habits we have, although we can choose which actions we take, which will probabilistically determine which habits that we have.
0: Well, right. So, um, so some habits, like, he he puts forward the idea of a habit of excellence,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: so so you can you can sort of choose that how you're going to practice whatever it is that you practice. And some things you do choose to practice, right? Like if you want to play an instrument or play a certain sport or something like that. Not every habit, of course, mm-hmm. but that since you sort of become your habits, and it sort of seems like neurologically, like you sort of die into your habits because your cris- your fluid IQ becomes your crystallized IQ. You're talking about accumulated knowledge mm-hmm. that it is really in your best interest to build the best possible habits into yourself, because that is what you essentially become and are, uh, plus whatever fluid IQ you have at whatever time
1: you're there. Right. That, that could take us to another uh, uh, conversation, but, uh, yeah. you know, we'll t- save that for another time. But I think that's, there's some perhaps truth to that. And you see that largely as people age uh, into, uh, you know, senior citizen, citizenship, but actually much, you know, well beyond where, a lot of their actions do seem to be more of habit than um, sort of fluid thinking, um, and so sh- sure, I'd sure like to have uh, excellence as a habit <laughs> 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 as I age versus uh, I don't know what the opposite of excellence is, but poor performance.
0: Vice, yeah, something, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and uh, well, as a kid, being told to practice right. And how it wouldn't just magically make me better to practice poorly. If I'd known some of this, it would have been helpful. And also just telling kids not to do things like take drugs or, you know, uh, you know, sell themselves short or not put in the best effort. It's like you are actually building a, you know, a little system into your brain that will automate. And is this the sort of behavior you want to be a part of your character for the rest of your life? And that mm-hmm. has nothing to do with what I want for you. And that is just a real question that you might want to answer. And I can mm-hmm. help you, you know, as a teacher, my idea then would be like, if you choose what I think is the best thing for you to choose, then I can help you. But you know, you're gonna have to put in some work because this is you. This is actually what you become.
1: So what, uh, you know, we'll go into your profession quickly. Uh, as a teacher, is, you know, is there a certain age range that you think, uh, that sort of discussion would be most effective or well, certain age I- range would very well be very ineffective?
0: I definitely know, so I teach mostly freshmen and sophomores. I've taught some juniors and seniors and adults as well, but mostly them. I think those, the freshmen are ready to hear it. The sophomores need to hear it. Um, because, I mean, I teach multiple levels, uh, honors levels and uh, general levels. And there's a definite a difference in attitude between them. And um, one, one of the problems Is that it's sort of a capitalistic problem the honor students are not only highly intelligent they're highly conscientious they they have great habits that their parents have helped them with and so with the general students they're often often you know and i don't distribute iq tests but around as smart as the honor students but they don't they a don't have the same motivation which i think is tied to b the fact that they don't have the same level of good habits that enabled them to feel differently about school because they're getting the positive rewards of like, uh, they're reaping the rewards of success of excellence, right? Like they're getting A's all the time and that's shooting their status up in like teacher's eyes and that's, uh, shooting their dopamine levels up. And also, uh, from what I hear, serotonin levels as well. Um, and so they're getting all this positive reward. Whereas my, my, my general level students, and I, I think this is often, And this is the problem with, like, say, the teacher-parent relationship, Um, that the teacher can teach some skills and help with some things, but many of the good habits that make a student successful in the classroom are built into the kid by the parent. And that is something that I would really like parents to know.
1: Um, Yeah, and they probably need to know that right away, early on. Um, Yeah. Of course, if they don't have it themselves, they may not be able or willing or desiring to – or teach that. See, and it. that's a
0: problem too, right? And there's a Freudian element to that too, which is, you know, can you deal with your kid being more successful than you or better than mm-hmm. you are at something? Even though evolutionarily, of course, that is the whole point, which is something I try to express to the kids. It's like, you are supposed to be better than I am and to have more than I have. The fact that your parents complain about you having more is a good thing, mm-hmm. not a bad thing. Uh, and that's what you're expected to pay forward. And
1: it's like yeah oh let me yeah just kind of make one comment uh, there that came up that I thought about while you were uh, uh you know a few minutes ago uh is that um you know we've talked at sometimes about uh, we all know i think it's probably pretty self evident but it's also been shown through through studies that you know people they need to feel like they're part of a group, typically they need to feel like they're part of a group, and especially when you're younger it, it, it may be that you uh, you know, what that group is about and their actual opinions isn't what really matters. It's that you are sort of accepted. And of course some people, and you know, they, uh, take actions or express opinions that are, um, uh, fit within that group's, um, you know, sort of collective thought and that then they are positively accepted in that group and rewarded for it and rewarded in in the way that you described where, you know, you were describing a group of, uh, teachers and, uh, Educated parents or parents that value that and sort of reward their their students uh, or their children through that, but also their peers. You know, they are often going to be um, hanging around other students that have that sort of same mindset. And so this goes back to you know just the old adage of uh, you don't want your kid hanging around with the wrong group or that other kid. And uh, it's unfortunate, but there's you know some truth to that because when they're hanging out with that other group, if you will, um, they may feel like they're part of that group that makes them feel good. So they're gonna continue taking on actions and thoughts that endear them to that group and perhaps at the expense of sort of opening up their mind more and you know working hard uh, in school.
0: And well, that actually ties to another part of Aristotle's ethics, which is the friendship of the good. Because it strikes me that then the people you choose to make into your in-group, the people you befriend, are people who share similar sort of habits to you, and probably they form those in relation to similar goals to you. Like, say, if you're both good swimmers, you both have the goal of becoming better swimmers or of winning at swimming competitions. And thus, the friendship of the good, or like the habit of excellence, would be based on uh, loving somebody who has the habit of excellence or the desire to cognitively tweak that which one is attempting in order to optimize it. Uh, uh habitually mm. um and that sort of the ultimate friendship therefore just in you know sort of regular language not whatever that crazy articulation was would be to hang around people who want the best for themselves and for you mm. um and are willing to work for it uh and do work for it and do yeah. their best
1: um and then yeah. yeah well you added a key point there you know do the they want the best for themselves and also for you um, right we all want the best for ourselves, let's be honest about it. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are happy to have the, get the best for the Truly, they, they think they can get the best for themselves at the detriment to others, you know, sort of a 0 sum game where others don't quite see it that way.
0: Yeah, no, and uh, I mean, uh, the economists like Francis Fukuyama say that uh, trust is actually our highest commodity in the West and that it makes us rich. And so it's very interesting to think that if I make myself rich with a concern for making you rich, we both get richer.
1: And that's yeah, uh, it generally shown. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't get rich by hey, <laughs> focusing on number one to the detriment of others. But it's, you know, we would like to think, or I would like to think that it's less likely than if you collectively work towards something, a, a common goal.
0: Well, I, I, there, there seems to be some research that that is true. Um, and so, well, well, so uh, I know we had a lot to talk about today, uh, Matt, Dr. Roos, but I've, uh, I, I know I've taken a lot of your time. And uh, well, just... Uh, I've been
1: happy to give the time, Alex. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, just to give the listeners a preview, we're going to have our mutual friend, the person who first uh, hooked us up together, Mr. Daniel Babcock, on uh, just before Thanksgiving to talk about what we, we promised we would never talk about or we hoped never to talk about free will. He's going to come and uh, light us up.
1: Uh, Right. And I thought I was going to be free to not have this conversation, but apparently I have to do it. So, you know, there's one other um, piece of evidence that we do not have free will.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Babcock better listen to this so that he's uh, he's ready for what's coming. Uh, (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Roos.
1: Had a great time, Alex. Thanks.